All right. Well, I mean, welcome to yet another edition of Light in Your Dark Mountain. I'm Chris Clements. This is Sean Noble. And we are really blessed and fortunate to have a, our, as our guest today, uh, Pastor Frank Switzer of uh, Redemption Arcadia Church. Right. And uh, I've gotten to know Frank over the last, gosh, two years. Right. Uh, principally because a friend of mine uh, named um, Jim Fersini told me I had to meet Frank when I moved to town. And uh, Frank has been um, really a pastor to a lot of business people here in town and has and had a longstanding family business here in town. And uh, he's here to talk to us about whatever he wants to talk about. Well, I have a, I mean, I think we talked before Frank got here. And thank you for being here, Frank. Um, I think this will be an in- interesting conversation. Is this where I ask for the uh, questions in advance? <laughs> <laughs> Too late. <laughs> yeah, okay. But let's ask, let's just. Jump right, right in. You want to jump right into the yeah, big one? the big one. So Frank and I met, uh, we meet for breakfast every once in a while, right. and I think we met at, at First Watch about yeah. two months ago, Yeah. and we sat We sat down, we ordered our food, and I, I basically looked across the table at Frank, and I said, okay, with the pandemic, what do you think God's doing? Yeah, so this is interesting to me, because I actually mentioned that um, in a sermon on a Sunday morning. I didn't use your name, but I mentioned this because... Uh, Generally, when pastors meet with people, uh, they're meeting with them to hear about the person's preference and how the church isn't meeting their preference in some area. (laughs) And so if you remember, I remember this distinctly because it was so out of the norm, so shocking to me. Uh, We had talked a little bit, and then you looked right at me, and, and you prefaced it much uh, with with a lot more. You said, you know, this last year with the pandemic, with the civil unrest, with the election, I mean, it's been a rough year. What do you think God is doing in the midst of this? And if you recall, I just sat back and I, I didn't say anything for a while. And then I, I actually told you, I said, I'm, I'm just sort of reveling in the moment that somebody would ask me a question like that, <laughs> that is, I think, more important than what I'm usually sitting around talking to people about. And the answer was, uh, it's, it, there's it's several prong. Number one, I think that first of all, in the church, I think he that God is uh, sifting and pruning the church. Oh. And how he's doing that is uh, all of these things that have combined in the last year have, have um, uh, not necessarily built character, but rather revealed a lot of character. And in, especially in terms of what our false gods are, what our idols are in our culture today. And what we're finding, unfortunately, is that uh, Jesus is great, wonderful guy, good teacher, filled with compassion and love, but really there are other things that are more important to a lot of people mm. who do attend church and call themselves Christians. And I, and I hope I don't say that in necessarily a critical way because we're all prone to that. I've got my own false gods too. I've got my own idols as well that I'm constantly having to figure out and push away uh, these idols, these false gods that get in, a, the re, get in the way of our relationship with God, but also get in the way of our relationship with others. Right. You know? If you think about church conflict and church division, uh, most of the time you can trace it back to somebody's preference for a false god rather than the gospel and that's where it starts and so i think god is pruning and shifting sifting the the faith community in that way it's moving people along moving people out but it's exposing uh it's revealing our false gods and our and our idols and the things that uh, are temporal part of this world that aren't necessarily as important as we think they are. It's not that they're bad things. You know, idols are not necessarily bad things. In fact, usually they're good things. They're just uh, built up into ultimate things, and that's when they become bad things. So I think that's what God is doing, is he's, he's forcing us to examine, do some self-assessment. He's pushing us towards prayer, I would hope, uh, and, and revealing some of our character to us, things that are there but haven't been on the surface in the past. That's the short answer, believe it or not. <laughs> well, <clears throat> it's a very interesting thought process to go through because, like, one of the things that I, I read recently, I think Pew 
uh, had their, some latest research that talked about church attendance. And for the first time since they've asked the question, fewer than half of right. Americans attend church on right. a regular basis. Um, that's that's concerning. Um, and then I had to look at myself and say, well, I, lately I've been one of those. Mm-hmm. You know, the beginning of the pandemic, we would watch church on online and then we kind of it just kind of fell off and yeah and so i think it is interesting to see how people have reacted to this and and you definitely can see people going away from god uh, mm-hmm. as a result of this saying well how could god let this happen um and i mean bad things happen all the time and it's you know i i said to people this happens because he's testing us. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to be able to demonstrate that we can get through tough times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thankfully for me and my family, I haven't had any, you know, as a result of the pandemic, there's been no crisis. Yeah. But uh, you certainly see it in other families. Sure. Sure. Kind of thing. Absolutely. It's been a very interesting throughout my life when to hear kind of general Christian talk about the church. It doesn't. It's not necessarily a denomination. It's it's the faith community, right? right? And I've always I've always wondered how the faith the, the non Mormon faith community views because we we view ourselves or have viewed ourselves, and I say ourselves. I'm not officially a member right now, but um, historically, as the tr- only true church. And Catholics believe that they're the only true, and then obviously you have the the, the broader church. Um, how does that does when when mainline Christians that are not of Catholic or Mormon faith, what's how do they view the totality? I guess that's a really vague question, but it is. Uh, if you're speaking about <laughs> specifically. Um, Mormons, I'm not sure. It depends on the on who you talk to, and it depends on what they know about the Mormon Church. And frankly, I have very few of those conversations. Not because I don't want to; it just hardly ever comes up. The conversation I do have a lot of is is about the relationship between the Catholic and the Protestant Church, which we would be considered Protestant Bible Church. Right. Um, not that Catholic isn't a Bible church, <laughs> but you know. Um, that comes up a lot because we have a ton of uh, people who grew up in the Catholic Church or, or who were formerly Catholic who attend our church. And this is just coming from me and my perception and the conversations that I have. I can't generalize this, but I can tell you what my experience has been. My experience is I think that there's more animosity between uh the Protestants and Catholics directed from the Protestants to the Catholics than there should be. Uh, it's, it's as if many Protestants have forgotten that we grew out of the Catholic Church. Right. <laughs> that right. When we talk about the historical church, that's our church. And so um, we tend to focus on our differences, and which can be significant and important, and I'm, I'm willing to have those hard conversations, but there's also a lot of similarities and, and there are a lot of there's a lot of common ground there, and um, uh, I think those are good conversations that you can have as well. I, it's funny, I just came out of a premarital session where, again, this came up because I do a lot of premarital where there's one who's kind of grew up in a Protestant or Bible church background, and the other one grew up in a Catholic, it's very, very hard, hard meaning like every Sunday Catholic, going to Mass every Sunday or Saturday night, and, and they're getting married, and they're going to do it in our church or in our tradition, and they're having to navigate with their family how that, what that's going to look like and how are we going to honor them during the ceremony and all right. that. So, Yeah, so it's, it's an important conversation. Interesting. Interesting. But, but were you... So I, I grew up sort of Heinz 57. I think we've had this conversation. Mm-hmm. So my, my, my grandmother was Southern Baptist, my, my grandfather was evangelical. My mother, her parents were both Catholic and Armenian apostolic. 
Oh, wow. I was okay. I was baptized in the Armenian Apostolic Church. That explains a lot about you, Chris. <laughs> so, I mean, if you've ever been to an Armenian Apostolic Church, it is something oh, yeah. else mm-hmm. with the incense and the whole thing. We used to go to have Easter at the at the cathedral in Would Fresno, that be Arizona. Shout out to people in Fresno who have endured that. But uh, and and you can't understand a thing they're saying. So I I had all these influences, but the greatest influence in my life was my my dad's mom, uh, my grandma Pat, who was Southern Baptist through and through. Mm-hmm. Bible. I mean, she she bought me Bible comics and things of that nature. Anything that she could to pour into me and to make me understand that that it's all about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I think we forget about that. Yeah. You know, and when we when we start debating church doctrine and we start debating church history, and we don't bring it back to Jesus and what what his teachings were, what who he was. Um, Andy Stanley has a great book about this called Irresistible, and he talks about the early church. And gosh, if we could just get back to the teachings of the early church, of the way, then we we wouldn't worry about all this other stuff, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't worry about you know who's in my camp, who's in your camp, right. what, what camp are you in, because that's how kind of we lead the discussion of religion in our society these yeah. days. Yeah. Is well, you know what 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 religion are you? Mm-hmm. Or uh, my friend Carl Medeiros wrote a great book called Speaking of Jesus. And he has this way of disarming people when people will ask him, well, you're a Christian, right? And he'll say, well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, right. Which is true. Yeah, sure. It's a really true thing. Like, well, what do you mean by that? Because that, because that moniker, Christian, mm-hmm. depending where you are in the world, can be a good thing or a bad thing. If you're in Beirut 20 years ago, not so good. Yeah. You know, and it can mean so many different it things. It can mean so, so many, many different, different things. There's a lot that comes with that, obviously with church history and everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and and so the how do we bring it back to Jesus? Well, I, that's a that's a big question again yeah. and and again you're only you're talking about one person trying to do something, but it, Redemption, give you a little background on Redemption Church. We're, sure. we're actually one church with 10 congregations in Arizona. Mm, okay. And um, But we're different than a lot of multi-site or multi-congregational churches in the sense that we, we don't have piped-in preaching from some one person, and then there's a screen that's raised up, and you see the same person in all the different locations preaching. So each of our congregations is locally led, local preaching. We're preaching through the same preaching calendar, but we're, we're locally contextualizing what we're saying. Uh, so everything is, is uh, contextualized within the local congregation. We all have our own elder boards, our own staffs, all of that stuff. We have things that are uh, centralized, things that are unified, and then things that are decentralized. So Redemption Arcadia, for some strange reason, probably a lot to do with me, we have a robust, large prison ministry hmm. that doesn't necessarily translate in, to some of the other congregations because that's not what they're gifted in. But So we're, we do things locally, but we also have things that are centralized and uni- unified. So one, one church, ten congregations. And then we say this. We are gospel-centered and outward-focused. So we believe that the gospel, the good news of Jesus doesn't turn you inward, but turns you outward. And you, you, you start outreach, you love your neighbor. And then the second thing is, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. So there you go. It is all about Jesus as far as we're concerned. And then specifically within our Sunday services, um, whatever text we're in in the Bible, we eventually get to the gospel and we say, here's where the gospel is in this text and applies to our lives in this text. So there's there's either implicitly or explicitly a call to Jesus in every single Sunday sermon at every every Redemption Church at some point. That's one thing uh, that w- that we need to remember. And then at Arcadia, anyway, I don't know necessarily how universal this is, but at Arcadia, anyway, even in our liturgy in the service, we tell the story of the gospel through song, prayer, communion, and preaching. So. Even if I don't do such a good job of sharing the gospel during my sermon, 
the, the overarching message of the service through the singing, the prayers, and everything else that we do is pointed towards Jesus and the gospel. So that's what we're trying to do in, in terms of that. Well, and it's interesting that you bring up the, the statistic about people going to church or not going to church. There's another statistic about um, you know people who aren't affiliated anymore. But what's really interesting about that set, it's, it's, it's a little misleading, is that churches like Redemption and other Bible-based churches are booming. Are growing, yes. Yeah. And traditional denominations are declining. They're, right. They're, they're contracting. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out why that is. And I think mm -hmm. it has a lot to do with what you just described, and that is the true gospel, you know, speaking of Jesus and, and, and not being marred in, in doctrine or rules or, or whatever else. Preferences, which yeah. is a big one. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. I see that happening, too. And I, and I get the statistics. And um, there's part of me that's sad that less than half the people are identifying as Christians now in America. But we knew that was coming, too, if you've been watching for the last 30 or 40 years. Right. Uh, but again, on the other hand, um, God always works through remnants. <laughs> if you look in Scripture, he's always working through a, rem a minority remnant. And so maybe we're on our way to that so that God can really do something. I, I met with a guy last week and he said, I'm, I'm waiting now. There's, it feels like there's going to be a revival coming because we're at that point where there's a lot of despair and frustration, which is when God usually works in terms of, re of revival. So right. we'll see if that happens too. How did you get to, to redemption? What, what's your, what's your story? Uh, how many episodes did I get to be in? <laughs> we'll have you on as many I, I did not grow up in the church at all. And there's so many stories related to that that are fascinating. Even the acquisition of our property yeah. uh, goes back, um, in my story, 40 years. I, I can tie it to somebody I knew 40 years ago in Chicago. <laughs> and he's related to the person that got me connected to uh, Boots Dunlap and all those guys that got us in to be able to get this property at 33rd Street in Cal. It's just an amazing story how God worked out all that. Out. Anyway, it's always interesting to go back and connect God's yeah. dots. He's got it's, all it's these markers. Fascinating. And, and you look back and it's like, oh, that's what was happening. Yeah. So I didn't grow up in the church. 27 years old, been to church like four times in my life. And um, so I ended up. Uh, dating a girl who grew up in the church, a woman who grew up in the church, and uh, I started going to church with her, North Phoenix Baptist Church, Central and Bethany Home. Yep. Used to drive by it and mock it and make fun of it and uh, all, you know, all that stuff that non-believers do, thinking in my arrogance, you know, and um, started going there, and uh, that's where God saved me was at North Phoenix Baptist Church with Richard Jackson preaching. That'll be a name that some of your listeners will go, oh, yeah, I remember him. Um, and so that was while we were still, you know, in the in the business world, in the public sphere, marketplace, however you want to describe that. And then um, the company we were working for and leading uh, eventually got sold. And so suddenly I'm 34 years old. I've got a little bit of college, no college degree, a little bit of college. Um, but I've got a brand new uh, worldview. So talked to my wife, Jackie, uh, decided I would go back to school, went to this tiny little uh, liberal arts school in central Phoenix called Grand Canyon University, got my degree in, in religious studies with a minor in communication, and uh, then went to Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. Uh, there was an extension here, so I took some of my classes here, but some of them in Pasadena, got my Master of Divinity, and then I applied at ASU, I wanted to get a, a Master of Arts in Communication Theory and heard that ASU was awesome at that. And they are. The Hugh Down School is, has a great yeah. worldwide reputation. And uh, somehow got in there and um, got that degree and started pastoring. Um, I wasn't always going to be a pastor. The idea behind my education was that I wanted to teach college. That's what I wanted to do. Uh, but I started to feel like God was pulling me, pushing me, calling me into pastoral ministry. And I resisted and resisted and resisted. And then it's 21 years ago, I'm working at a church part-time and I'm just starting to teach part-time as well, adjunct. I taught some here and I just started teaching at Paradise Valley Community College, communication theory. So 
I, I, I taught a number of classes at GCU uh, 20, 25 years ago. Um, I felt God calling me into pastoral ministry, and I was pushing back, pushing back. Finally, I said to God, I made a deal with God. You, now is when you laugh. Yeah, we have, no, we've, I, all, I, we've all I, tried to. Yeah. <laughs> I said, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll go into pastoral ministry if I never have to do prison ministry, because that sounds really hard, and it sounds like there's no return on investment. And I felt like God had accepted the deal, and I said, all right. So I took this call to be a lead pastor at Paradise Valley Community Church, 42nd Street in Greenway. And three months later, between services, a lady walks up to me. Her name is Leslie Baranzini. She still lives here in the Valley. She said, uh, hey, I just moved down here from the Seattle area. My husband is kind of wrapping things up with his career. He's going to move down here. The reason we moved down here is because our son um, ended up in prison. He's 19 years old. He's serving five years down in Florence. Um, I've been coming here the last couple of weeks. I've decided that I, I want to be a part of this church, and I want you to start writing my son, and I want you to get cleared by the Arizona Department of Corrections to be clergy for him so that you can do clergy visits with him. And I had, <laughs> I had this conscious experience of facial management technique, you know, where I was <laughs> smiling and nodding my head, and internally I'm going, you got to get this woman away from me. You know? <laughs> so I said, all right, send me all this stuff. I'll figure it out. Six months later, I'm writing this guy and visiting him in prison. He connects me to a couple of other guys, and they connect me to a couple of other guys. Next thing you know, I'm writing a bunch of guys in prison. I'm going down there and visiting these guys. Next thing you know, I know the chaplains down there. They're inviting me down to speak and preach and all that stuff. Then I get involved with um, Collis Huntington, who started a ministry called Alongside Ministries, which is a transition ministry for uh, ex-cons to come out and get trained in, in reassimilating. Um, Alongside Ministries is a fascinating transition ministry. Uh, the recidivism rate in Arizona is somewhere in the 60s. In other words, reoffending mm -hmm. rate, yeah. somewhere in the 60%. Um, alongside ministry, people that go through alongside ministries, men and women, the recidivism rate for them is less than 9%. Oh, wow. It's amazing. That's incredible. And they do it all off of contributions and stuff. No, no, no state or federally funded money at all. It's a, an and I've been partnering with them for about 20 years now, doing stuff with them too. So anyway... And, and then 10 years ago, um, uh, a guy named Tom Schrader, who's one of our two founding pastors, very well known in the Valley, greatest Bible teacher I've ever known in my life, um, you know, he texted me and said, hey, let's grab coffee. We'd been friends for a long time and um, knew each other really well, had coffee together a lot, but I knew there was something to, I knew, I just, I can just tell with Tom. And, and so I texted him back, and I said, ooh, mysterious. And he said, I'll tell you when you get here. And so I got there, and he said uh, they had just started Redemption. They had merged East Valley Bible Church in Gilbert and Praxis Church, Justin Anderson's church, and he had Tempe and Arcadia. Arcadia was more of a site. It wasn't really a congregation. And, and he said, uh, and, and there was Gateway had joined. So we were four or five congregations at that time. But he said, hey, uh, Justin's leaving one of the founding pastors one of the great communicators he's leaving he's going to plant a church in san francisco so we need we already know what we're going to do at redemption tempe but we need somebody for redemption arcadia we, we want to make that a full-fledged congregation now build infrastructure and all that i can't offer you the job i'm too close to you i'm just i'm just here to ask you if you'd be willing to have that conversation and uh, i said well i got to pray about it and talk to jackie but inside i'm going this is amazing. I never thought I'd ever get a chance to work with Tom Schrader. Mm -hmm. um, so I had kind of already made up my mind. But I went home. Jackie comes home. She doesn't even kiss me. She doesn't say hi. She just comes in, and she knows something's up. And she goes, all right, what did Tom say? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, he wanted to know if I'd be interested in having a conversation about Redemption Arcadia. And she said, you told him yes, didn't you? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess we prayed about it. Anyway, so... He turned me over to Tyler Johnson, who's our lead pastor over all the congregations, and, and he spent 10 weeks interviewing. It is the most incredible vetting job I've ever been through in my life. He vetted me like nobody's business. But at the end of the 10 weeks, they said, all right, let's, let's do this. And that's how I came to Arcadia almost, well, nine and a half years ago. So. Wow. Yeah. What, uh, 
what kind of business stuff did you do prior to getting into the pastoral? I, I really loved retail. I'm, I'm an old school retail guy. I, I worked at, uh, I, um, I had jobs. My, my first really full-time job in retail was at uh, Baker Shoes in Christown Mall. No kidding. <laughs> and this was back in the late 70s uh, when Christown Mall was the highest sales per square foot mall in Arizona. Um, Metro had opened, and they were doing more total business. But for, in terms of sales per square foot, Christown was the place to be. And uh, so I worked there. Uh, they eventually moved me to Abilene, Texas, to manage a store. Uh, and then they moved me to the Chicago area. I spent five years in Chicago managing stores for them. Then they moved me to Houston, where I was a regional manager, um, supervising 19 stores. But the mistake was that they moved me to Houston. I, I'm not very fond of Houston. <laughs> <laughs> so then I came back from Houston, uh, left them, came back, and, and went to work for, uh, again, historically, some great history in Arizona. Yeah. I worked for uh, the Big Four company, restaurants. So Lee Cohen... Um, Barry Goldstein, all those guys. Worked for them for a while, and then I went into the. I, I got called into the family business, which was a chain of women's clothing stores. So, um, and along the way, a little bit of rest, uh, real estate investment and stuff with my dad. So, how did you? What did you take from the experiences of your business background and retail background? How did that? help you or did you take anything from it as you went into you know? I took a I feel like I took a lot uh, one an understanding that uh, a church isn't a business but there are business principles that you need to use and incorporate and be aware of obviously but I think the most impactful time was um, at Paradise Valley Community Church so 21 years ago I went to my first elders meeting and there there's uh, agenda for the elders meeting was always the same started with prayer and then there was a little devotion and then the uh, church treasurer would pass out the previous month's P&L statement. And so they're passing that out and I didn't get one. And I was like, Where, where's mine, you know? And they were like, the, the pastor usually leaves during this part, they're, they're not interested, doesn't look at that stuff. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> Make me a copy, I wanna know. And so even then, you know, it was like, it's not that he wasn't, that's, that language too strong. It's not that they, he wasn't interested, it's just that it wasn't his wheelhouse. Well, I knew how to read financial statements and I understood that and I understand trends and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, this is a part of leading and managing the church, I need to see this stuff. And then, you know, Pretty soon, I started meeting with the church treasurer um, two days before that elder meeting to, to preview the, the, the financial statements because I thought it was important to read them and know them and even point out where there might be some errors, possibly. Right. So um, most pastors go into, the, go into pastoral ministry having no understanding, no idea how to do any of that kind of stuff, and I think that's a, that's a challenge for people. So that's been helpful. That's been an asset to me. Um, I feel like I have a, some level of understanding of the vernacular of the business world in both real estate and financial advising and all the, all the stuff that you run into in the Arcadia area. So I can, I can, I can pastor and shepherd people while also speaking their language, which I, which I think is important sure. too. I think that's been helpful. But God synchronized all of that. It wasn't me. It wasn't a plan or anything. So, it, you know. I just feel I'm, I'm a big believer that, that God does put you in certain situations guide you down path that help as you know creates building blocks for what you're meant to do mm -hmm. beyond that yeah um, are, are you are you able to speed up church time what does that mean speed up church time do you so, want shorter services is that what you're uh, no it's what, I, yeah. what i've learned so <laughs> so a lot of people don't know this but um after we sold our company five years ago, I spent three years being the financial advisor for a church town, yeah. Tucson, yeah, City that's Church. Right. And the speed at which decisions are oh, made okay. in church I gotcha. oh, yeah. is much different than in the business yeah. world. And I, I, I had an elder basically pull me aside and say, this is what we call church time. <laughs> and I'm like, he goes, you just need to yeah. um, respect the process and and that God is in it and, and eventually we'll get there. I'm like, yeah, and and actually was really good for me mm -hmm. because 
of under of of waiting, of learning mm-hmm. how to wait and learning how to to look mm-hmm. for for God's timing in in, in that space. Yeah. Sure. Because in the business world, we just we know where we want to go, yeah. and and my biggest both strength and weakness it can be weakness is is knowing the answer and thinking everybody else knows the answer and basically telling everybody we're going that way and and then i i start going and i look behind around me and nobody's there. yeah right we're we're church time yeah everyone everyone gets there together in a much different way. So I think it's I think it's both a good thing, but it can be a hindrance. So there's again that tension on either side. Um, myself, the staff, we spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, thinking about church stuff. And so when we when we do make a decision, when we are sure where we want to go, we have to slow down. Yeah. Because the assumption is we've put in all the work. We understand what 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 we think needs to happen. Why, why aren't they, why aren't they up to speed? Well, you got to bring them up to speed. That's really yeah. hard stuff. It is. You have to demonstrate patience and perseverance in the midst of that. Yeah. So sure. And there's there's great wisdom in slowing down, but sometimes you also have to look at something and realize when it's time to, you better move. Yeah. You know? So Which one has to do with you know, new buildings or new things that that that, yeah. that you know the church needs yeah so we have a we have a school that meets uh that is using our facility during the week it's called acton academy they're all over the world right now there's about 250 of them all over the world and we had the first one in phoenix and they're growing like mad now and so now this is starting to press in terms of we want to keep them there and they want to stay there but how are we going to figure out how to manage the property so that we can all be there because we think it's important also that you know, a lot of church real estate, unfortunately, is not used at all during the week, and that's right. that's too bad. Yeah, and so we want to be able to keep doing that. So, you you kind of glossed over just a little bit of of the family history, mm-hmm. and um, and that's another point where we yeah where I sure. think we 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 have a lot in common. We bonded almost instantly. And I mean, your family is a very iconic family here in. In Phoenix, I mean, Switzer's department stores was kind of a big deal, yeah, for three generations, yeah. And talk to us a little bit about the ending of that and how, first of all, how it all came about. I mean, the, the department store, yeah, and how it became one of the most iconic. I mean, along with Goldwater, I was going to say Switzer's and Goldwater, and, and yeah, right. Switzer's and Goldwater <laughs> was like the the places to and, go. And diamonds, and yeah. diamonds, which was you know sold to Dillard's. Yeah. So um, that, that was an era that I certainly remember mm-hmm. and, and and living here for a time and then being in Tucson as well. I mean, everyone always talked about Switzer's. Yeah. That it was, it, it, there was Goldwater's and Diamonds and there was Switzer's. Yeah. Sort of, okay. <laughs> yeah. Reverence. <laughs> so, and, and, and uh, but, but a family business nonetheless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and talk a little bit about your, your time there growing up in it and then how yeah. you know, the ending of it. So um, Switzer's was actually um, a women's specialty store with different departments, but it started in 1917. So yeah. five years after, was it five years after we became state? Yeah. It was the first women's specialty store in Arizona. It, 1917 is the same year that um, JCPenney's got started in Kemmerer, Wyoming. Interestingly enough, we didn't end up like JCPenney's. But, um, <laughs> So and it was started by my grandfather. He borrowed $1,500 against his Metropolitan Life insurance policy to start this store in uh, Phoenix. He was working for Bullock's, I believe it was, mm-hmm. in Los Angeles as a buyer. Somebody said, you ought to open a store in Phoenix. They, they don't have a store, and it would be great. So he came over, checked it out, decided to open the store there. My dad was born here, went to Kenilworth grade school, and then eventually they moved to Los, back to the Los Angeles area. Um, because he had the store in Phoenix, but my grandfather then opened five stores in the Los Angeles area and eventually opened in Tucson, too. And then his three sons took over the business. My father in Phoenix, uh, the older brother, Don, down in Tucson, the younger brother, Robert, in, in Los Angeles. And um, uh, over the years, uh, 
Tucson went away, Los Angeles went away, but my, my father was able to thrive and build a business. And eventually it was, you know, 15 stores across the Southwest. So it was Phoenix, Las Vegas, Reno, Tucson, El Paso, Albuquerque, even Lubbock and San Antonio for a while. Hmm. And um, so uh, going, going well. And then um, my father decided to retire. I, I took over as CEO, but um, my father and, and uncle had the stock. Yeah. And we had a board of directors and all that. So um, we had hired a fairly new operations manager. He'd been around three years and he walked in to my office one day uh, in 1993, fall of 1993, for what he thought was going to be a five minute conversation. He said, hey, uh, some guys from Dress Barn in Stamford, Connecticut called. They had 650 stores nationwide, but nothing in the southwest. They said, said they called and they were wondering if we were interested in selling and I said well I guess I better ask you know the shareholders you know and so we ended up talking about it for 90 minutes he thought it would be a quick conversation we talked about it for 90 minutes talked to my father uh, who was the majority shareholder and, and uh, we had been in business 77 years at that point he said yeah let's look at it and 105 days later we gave them the keys to the to the company and they gave essentially my father and my uncle a check <laughs> right <laughs> and i and i worked to shut everything down including liquidating all of the inventory and all of the you know whatever stuff they didn't want they were really buying us for our leases we had what's called sweetheart leases sure. leases that had been negotiated Decades earlier, this is before when at the time when you negotiate a five-year lease and that's it. You know, you had a 25-year lease with a 15-year option at the same rate. Same it's just goofy. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're in Christown Mall for four dollars a square foot no, and a no. cap on common area maintenance. I mean, that's an asset. Yeah. You know, that's what they're buying it for. You know, and so that's we ended up selling and I shut everything down, including our profit sharing plan. I had to liquidate and distribute all of that. And that was an experience. I learned a lot doing all of that. And, and at the same time, I was transitioning into school uh, for that. So that's how Switzer's went away after 77 years. I mean, we, you know, when I was there, we were um, most, a lot of people don't identify Switzer's with this, but we were the number one seller of junior prom dresses in Arizona for most of the major junior prom uh, dress lines in New York. We, we did a fantastic that business. That's fascinating. Yeah. Huh. So Go back and look at yearbooks from the 70s and 80s and you see a bunch of Switzer's. All the taffeta and <laughs> right. poofy sleeves and everything. Yeah. What, yeah. what, what was your, I mean, your, how old were you when this, when this went down? I was 34 when when I started actually at GCU. No, no, but when uh, when you were selling, when, 33, 34, 33, 34. Yeah. And yeah. and so what were you what were you thinking? Were you thinking that your dad and uncle were nuts, or do you think no? You could not you could at see. all. I I had had a change in worldview. Sure. So I Jackie and I spent a lot of time talking about how this is just God moving us on to what He has it for us next. So I was thoroughly committed to. Uh, kind of stripping everything down as much as we could and going to school, yeah. you know. And uh, my parents helped a lot with that. They were very supportive of that, you know. And it was it was um, it was an interesting time. So I just I I worked hard at school, got jobs speaking at places on the side to earn a little extra money. Jackie was working, and so we made it work somehow, you know. So, but I just figured it was it was. The next step that God had. Yeah, uh, there was an instant recognition that God was. Yeah, in this. God was in the midst of this. There's, because yeah. you know, when I had the change of worldview, I'm kind of like, you know, how do we, how do we make this so that it's a gospel-centered business and all that? And I guess in His own way, He said, "Well, I'm really going to take you into gospel-centered <laughs> business," you know. <laughs> so I guess that's uh, yeah. It was just like riding the wave and being okay with that. You know, it was it wasn't without its challenges. It's not sure. that it wasn't hard, but it was good. Yeah, I mean, I can relate to that, you know, very deeply because when I when I decided to change my worldview, yeah, um, basically God took me out kicking and screaming. I I, I yeah. kept thinking I could change, not only the way I was was looking at things, but I could change everything. Mm -hmm. And and He just said, No, that's not going to happen. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm extracting you, not, not unfortunately, not only from the business, but also from relationships that were not 
not healthy. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, brought us up here. Yeah. So yeah, I, I get that. I mean, when God, when God works, I think it goes back to our initial question, right? Mm-hmm. When he works and he's, he's, he's working. It's, yeah. You can, you can, you can bargain, right? Yeah. You can bargain. You can, you can try to make it about yourself, but if he's working and he has, and he's ready and you're ready, it, it happens very, very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I look back at that time now as everything happens so fast. Yeah. And, uh, from the moment, I guess, I mean, I made a firm commitment to follow Jesus. It was eight months and the, and the company was sold. Yeah. Wow. And it was my decision, but it, it happened. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then everything that's happened since has been totally his doing. Yeah, exactly. I, I had no idea I would end up at Redemption Church. Uh, I had no God, idea I'd be sitting next to Sean Noble doing yeah. a podcast at Grand Canyon University. <laughs> I had no idea I'd be on a podcast. There you, you know, go. Funny, usually I'm on the other side of this. I'm usually the one asking the questions, so this is a kind of a new experience for me. But, yeah, I, I, I get that. It's just – and there's nothing I would regret about any of it. It's been hard at times, but there's nothing I would regret about I, that I haven't – I don't have any regrets about it. And neither does Jackie. Interesting thing is uh, Jackie, God always told Jackie that she would marry a a pastor. Mm. And then when we got together, she said, well, I guess I misread that. (laughs) (laughs) A few years later, she's like, oh, well, there we go. God fixed it. (laughs) And the other other thing that's interesting is is that I, I forget to mention often is that God still honored that desire in my heart to teach at the college level. I've been doing that for 22 or 23 years now uh, as an adjunct, as a part-timer, and enjoying it. I've taught at Grand Canyon. I've taught it uh, for the Maricopa County District for the last 21 years at PBCC. Been great, wonderful people there. And then I taught at Fuller Seminary, the extension here, for 18 years. But I taught communication. You have to have a Ph.D. if you're going to teach theology at the seminary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I taught communication there. So That's great. Yeah. It, it strikes me that one of the things that I think that people um, that you're being guided, but there's a lot of people who resist, right? I mean, they just they try to figure out, mm-hmm. well, that's not really what God wants me to do because they start to look more inward instead of outward. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who are struggling with trying to hear what God really is trying to tell them? Well, there's a lot of ways you could go there, but I would I would zero in on two right away. I, I mentioned that idea eight or ten times in my life where I really felt like God was speaking directly to me. It was the Holy Spirit pointing me in some direction. And I hear a lot of people say, oh, the Spirit is telling me to do this. And I'm, I'm like, well, what is it? And then you find out it, it's really something that they really want to do. <laughs> and it's probably not that biblical, right? But it's the Holy Spirit. But, but, you know. <laughs> but it's called God. My experience with when I felt like the Spirit was telling me something or leading me in some way, two things. One, it doesn't contradict anything in the Bible. And mm. two, it's nothing that I came up with or anything that I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. That's a pretty good indication because my flesh wants to go somewhere else always. And I got all kinds of stories about, you know, those eight or ten times. But they're all like that. They're all like, I'm, you know, I'd rather go do something else or think about something in a different way. The other one is um, we're going to do, I think, you know, we're going to do Nehemiah this summer. We're going to take a break from the Gospel of John and do Nehemiah, Old Testament book, for um, nine weeks. And the thing that keeps striking me about Nehemiah is talk about church time. In, in chapter 1, when he is told of the problem in Jerusalem, 1,100 miles away, and he is broken over the problems in Jerusalem for his people, he doesn't say anything about it for four months. He prays for four months. He waited. Mm-hmm. You know, you and I, we'd be like, boom, we got to go do something, you know? He waited. He The first thing he started doing was praying, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and then God opened that door for him with um, uh, Artaxerxes, the king. When the king went to him, and, you know, Nehemiah was his cupbearer, and he said, why are you so downcast today? You know, 
And that opened the door for Nehemiah to say, hey, this is what's going on. And Artaxerxes says, well, let me help you. You know, and so Nehemiah, I'm sure, is going, well, that would be God doing that. But he waited. You know, he was patient and he prayed. And if and you go through the rest of the book of Nehemiah, the guy is constantly praying first before he does anything. You know, it's amazing. I kind of, there's a sense in which in chapter four where there's opposition to Nehemiah, I kind of liken him to Jack Reacher, you know. Okay. Now, Nehemiah was always, um, you know, hoping for the best, preparing for the worst, and didn't do anything if he didn't think he was going to win. So, right. <laughs> Okay, now I'm going to think of Nehemiah looking like Tom Cruise. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't go that far. Yeah, right. <laughs> you never know. You never know. No, I, I, think, you're, I think you're right. I think um, the, the, the patience to look where God is leading you. And I said it earlier, connecting the dots. There's, oh, he's, you can always look back and see, okay, well, this led me to this point, this led me to this point, and, and kind of know that despite your negotiations with God, whatever that might look like, he's going to be pushing you in the direction that he wants. I mean, your prison ministry is a perfect example of that. And uh, me sitting here with Sean Noble and Grand Canyon University doing a podcast yeah. and, and, and doing some interesting things here that I would have never thought yeah. five years ago, un, un, you know, un... On uh, unwinding a, a business and then and then moving along that I would, you know, be in the space, and 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 so I I think the, one of the answers is just just hold on, because God's working. Yeah, right. I I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think people, I think patience. The the example of Nehemiah is a good one. I think that that is something that, I mean, especially in this day and age, there is no patience anymore no. people want instant answers and i think i think one of the ways that i have it's it's been evident in my life is you know i'll seek an answer for something and realize i've got to really spend some some time praying being introspective really just sitting still and letting my mind grasp right what it is that i should be doing yeah so but we, we, but you're right. We live in a culture where, uh, where inactivity means you're not doing anything. You're not being productive. Um, Tom used to say all the time that if you get caught thinking at work, people will say, "Well, we're not paying you to think." Well, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there are times when um, the most productive time I have is when I can slow down, like going just walking in the in the mountain preserves, you know, for an hour and I and I'm able to think and pray about things and sort things out, you know. Um, that can be some of the most productive time that I have. So as you can tell, we just had a technical difficulty with uh, Frank's yeah. podcast. Um, I think we figured it out. I'm gonna you know Alex are I'm blaming the mics. I I I'm blaming the mics fair. and these things because I had a hard time like trying to figure out where where this was supposed to be, where this was supposed to be. Yeah. Because I'm used to like this big large right. deal. But it was but it's probably fortuitous because we're now a couple weeks from when we taped Frank. Yeah. And in the meantime, my wife who's pregnant has been having some complications. And the timing of this has been remarkable. Because as you just listened to, you know, talk about bargaining with God and on that Saturday when she was bleeding and in the hospital and I didn't know what was going on, I found myself bargaining with God. Mm -hmm. And it was so powerful to have had the conversation with Frank and with you days before that happened. And then to just have that calm feeling of knowing Hey, everything's going to be fine because it's in God's hands. And um, I'm not certain. Well, I am certain. I'm certain that I would not have been as calm and as peace, at peace, knowing everything was going to be fine, had we not had that conversation a few days before. It's just one of those things where I see God's hand. Why? Well, I, I mean, I, I have this saying that sometimes God just walks in the room and and gives you precisely what you need when you need it. Not that he's always with you and in control, 
but um, one of the hardest things, lessons I had to learn um, while we were selling our family company was that truth, that that God is in it, and and waiting on God is sometimes the hardest thing. Yeah, this whole idea of waiting on God. We're not we're an impatient people. We're in a, we we want things when we want them. Um, and interestingly enough, our, our um, the the church that Sasha and I go to, Scottsdale Bible, uh, the uh, the sermon this weekend was on precisely that, on God's provision during times of doubt and um, uncertainty, and and the sermon was on uh, John twenty one, where the the disciples are up in the Sea of Galilee, and Peter decides he's going fishing. Now, my read of that is totally different than most people's. My read of it is Peter is sort of like, what is going on? I have no clue what's happening. I don't know where I am in all this, having done, having already betrayed my Lord. And he says to his, his best buddies, I'm going to fishing. I don't know what I'm going to do. Checking out. I'm checking out. <laughs> and they say, we're going with you. They could have said, okay, great. Have a good time. We're going with you. And they go out, of course, and the story goes, they catch nothing. But then this figure on the shore says, hey, put your nets over to the right side of the boat. And they bring in 153 fish. And so the idea is, I mean, that by pursuing Jesus, by pursuing him and him only, he provides, right? Right. And that was so much of what Frank was talking about. Absolutely. So it was a wonderful episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, We'll have more of those types to come as well. Absolutely. In addition to the politics and the dark money and the light beer, we're going to have a, a light beer conference. Yeah, I, you know, I think I think we can announce that. We, we're, we're working on actually having some guests who will talk about dark money and light beer. Not not exactly in the same, pod, in the same, in the same episode. episode right? But, but people uh, that are beyond, all right, well, you're pretty expert, I'm pretty expert, but there's additional viewpoints. Yes, we're gonna have right. Yeah. So, we'll, so I have an, a viewpoint on dark money. We're gonna bring someone who has a different viewpoint. Yeah. And you have. A, a I'm, I'm gonna about bring. <laughs> I'm gonna bring in um, a gentleman, hopefully, who is uh, my biggest competitor in the state, and uh, who who became a great friend of mine. That so it'll, it'll be fun. That will be fun. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you.